Well, good morning. It's a joy to stand before you and preach the Word of God this morning. You know, the, the Lord has a, a funny way of, uh, of uh, in, you know, a week, months, weeks past, we set up our sermon calendar, and the Lord has a funny way of, of allowing the Word that we're going to be preaching, us pastors are going to be preaching that Sunday to, to need to minister to our own souls before I stand before you and, and pray that it ministers to your soul as well. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, join me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is okay. Uh, the words should be on the screen back here as we read them together. This morning, we're going to continue walking through our sermon series in the Beatitudes. We've been walking through the Beatitudes for the past two weeks, and, and as we've done so, we've unpacked each Beatitude in succession. We started off by looking at, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and then we looked at, blessed are those who mourn. And this morning, we're going to continue doing the same. We're going to examine the third Beatitude, blessed are the meek. And with the Lord's help, my prayer is that together we will excavate the glorious truths of what meekness looks like in the life of the disciple, in the life of the true believer. So we're going to be just reading one verse this morning, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 5. I'll, I'll read the text for us. I'll pray and ask God's help as I preach and as we submit ourselves under the living and active Word of God, and then we'll dive in and we'll unpack this text together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 5 and ending in verse 5. The Word of the Lord says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, I, I need you this morning. Lord, I know even in my own life how tempting it is as a true disciple not to live a meek life, not to be gentle, not to be humble. God, I've even felt the, the tension and the temptation of that even this week, God. And so I'm so thankful for your word, for your for your word that is living and active, that is regularly pointing me back to the person and work of Jesus. God, I'm so thankful for your grace and for your mercy that's made new every morning. Lord, I pray now that as, as we fall, fall on our knees before the cross of Christ this morning, and as we humble ourselves and submit ourselves before your word, God, I pray that we would take heart as we examine what meekness looks like, as we ask why ought disciples of Jesus, why, why should disciples of Jesus be meek in the first place? And as we look at a couple of characteristics of meekness, God, I pray that your word would shape us and mold us. Jesus, you prayed in John 17 for the disciples to be sanctified in the truth, and you followed that up by saying your word is truth, and God, it is your word that is able to shape us and mold us to look more like Jesus. So, God, would you this morning move us from one degree of glory to the next? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help me as I preach. 
as Jared said, God, would you cause me to decrease so that you could increase? Would you receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory this morning? And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the last two weeks, we've been careful to point out that the Beatitudes are not ethical virtues that we all strive to meet. The Beatitudes are not a set of standards that we, uh, we, we, we check off a box so that we can earn God's favor somehow. No, what we've, what we've been careful to describe the Beatitudes as, as they are a list of descriptions of what the life of the true disciple looks like. Those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Meekness, then, as we look at that third beatitude, meekness, then, it should be, ought to be the aroma of the Christian life. Meekness is the way of life for those who are citizens of a different kingdom that is ruled by a different king. And so, on the front end, friends, we must remember that the, 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 uh, the beatitude of meekness is not something that we strive for to earn God's favor. If you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, it ought to be the very thing that describes your life. And so this morning, I want to I unpack three questions that I hope will give us a better understanding of the beatitude of meekness. First, I want to ask the question, why should the disciple live a meek life? Second, I want us to ask the question, why or what does the meek life actually look like? That's the rubber meets the road, the very practical, very tangible, what does meekness look like? And third, we'll round out our time this morning by asking the question, what is the outcome of the meek life? What's the result of meekness? And so if you're someone who likes to take notes or you're someone who likes to just have a general idea of where we're headed this morning, then the main point of the sermon, or the sermon in a sentence, if you will, is this. The life of the disciple should be marked by meekness, knowing their inheritance is secure in Christ. I'm going to say that again. The life of the disciple should be marked by meekness, knowing their inheritance is secure in Christ. So three questions, that's the main point. Let's jump in and answer and tackle these questions together. First, why should the disciple of Jesus live a meek life? It's a great place to start. It's where we ought to start as we ask ourselves this question of every beatitude. And we start with this question this morning because if we simply look ahead to the characteristics of meekness, then we, we really miss the reason as to why Jesus calls His disciples to be meek in the first place. If we simply jump to asking the question, what does meekness look like? Then we may be tempted or we may accidentally slip into behavior modification rather than true heart transformation. You see, the great... 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he once said this on the Beatitudes. He said the Beatitudes are like rungs on a ladder. And to reach this rung of the ladder, the rung of meekness, he must first set his feet upon the other two. There must be first poverty of spirit and second mourning of heart 
before there will come that gracious meekness that our text speaks. You see, friends, disciples of Jesus live lives marked by meekness because we remember so clearly, so vividly how poor in spirit we are and because we mourn our sinfulness. Remember this. Our poverty of spirit puts us in a desperate and hopeless place. We are not spiritual middle class. And then Jesus comes along and somehow makes us spiritual upper class. That's not what poverty of spirit looks like. Jesus, not, Jesus does not come beside us and make our normal, comfortable lives that much better and that much more comfortable. No, our spiritual condition is like that of a beggar who has nothing to his name. One who would be utterly hopeless without the help of another. This is why it makes no sense to try to earn God's favor. This is why it makes no sense to try to, to, try to somehow work salvation into your favor. No amount of good works will ever be enough to earn God's favor because we're drawing from a bank account that is empty. Like if I took a check and I, and I, and I wrote you a check for a million dollars and I gave it to you, I can write it all I want. I can put as many zeros after that one as I want to. But if you were to take that check of a million dollars and take it to the bank and cash it, you wouldn't get the money. Because I simply don't have it in my account. So too are we in our spiritual poverty. We are drawing from an account that is empty. And because of that, because we're drawing from an account that is empty, and we're spiritually bankrupt, that means that our sinfulness runs deep. It cuts deep. It affects every aspect of our lives. We're not just decent people who occasionally do bad things. We are wretched sinners. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that by nature we are children of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Friends, the debt that we have incurred is insurmountable. It's a it's a mountain that's so high you will never be able to climb it. You and I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. We have taken His good and His right and His glorious and His perfect precepts and commands. Read Psalm 119 to see how beautiful the Word of the Lord is and all of His commands for our lives. We've taken those commands and we've trampled them like elephants parading through a field of daisies. David drives home this point in Psalm 14. In, in Psalm 14, uh, Paul actually quotes this in the book of Romans, but in Psalm 14, David says this. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What happens? God looks down. Does he find an earth full of people who are loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. God looks down on the earth and they've all turned aside, David says in Psalm 14. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not one person does good. Every one of us, myself, you, all of us, have broken God's law. 
And because of that, our sin against an infinitely holy God ought to cause us to weep. We should be broken and distraught because we've sinned against our merciful and gracious God. The writer of Psalm 119 says this, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Jared's quoted that I think twice the past couple weeks because it's so true. Our eyes ought to shed streams of tears. We ought to be woefully broken. We ought to be like Isaiah when he sees the Lord in the temple in Isaiah 6 and he falls on his knees and says, Woe is me, I am undone. You see, as disciples of Jesus who look upon our poverty of spirit, we ought to grieve our sin and our hearts ought to mourn how short we fall of God's holy standard. That's why Spurgeon can say that, that the, the beatitude of meekness is like a rung on a ladder because we don't get to meekness. It makes no sense for us to jump to, to meekness without first posturing our hearts in one of poor of spirit and mourning over sin. You see, when disciples of Jesus, those who are true believers of the true King, who are citizens of a different kingdom, when we rightly remember our spiritual condition, when we see how poor in spirit we are, and when we rightly mourn our sinfulness, how could we end up in a posture in anything other than meekness? How do we, how do we look upon our poverty of spirit and how do, we, how do we mourn our sin and somehow end up with pride swelling up in our hearts? It makes no sense. The only right response is meekness. So that's why disciples of Jesus should live a meek life. Because we've been brought from death to life, to finish out Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, we've been made alive with Christ. Because that is the case, we remember back to our poverty of spirit and we recognize how poor in spirit we are even today. You and I, 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 I don't know about you, I'll say that, I don't want to speak for you, but I don't know about you, but I know about me, it's hard for me to go a day without sinning. It's hard for me to go an hour without somehow transgressing the Lord. And that poverty of spirit and that mourning ought to bring us on our knees before the cross of Christ. That poverty of spirit and that, that weeping over our sin ought to result in a heart that is meek. So that's the first question. That's why should disciples of Jesus live a meek life? The second question that I want to spend really the bulk of our time unpacking is this. What does the meek life look like? What does the meek life look like? I want to look at two characteristics of the meek life. I initially had three I had to cut one because I, yeah, the third one was patience, and I feel like we'll get to patience when we talk about uh, peacemakers um, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we're just going to focus on two characteristics of gentleness, these, or sorry, of, of meekness. Uh, these aren't the only characteristics of meekness, but I think these are the two most prominent characteristics of meekness. I tipped my hand just a second ago with a Freudian slip, and the first one is gentleness. The meek 
Life is one that is distinctively gentle. The Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, to describe the meek, it's actually the exact same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, flip over with me to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, because this is a, we're going to camp out here for just a few minutes, because this is a profound, profound verse. Verses. Matthew chapter 28, 29. Again, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. They'll be on the screen behind us. But Matthew chapter 28, or chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus gives us these comforting words. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. And heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Did you catch that? Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the one who John says in the book of Revelation has eyes like flaming fire, whose, whose word is like the roar of waters. That Jesus, God of God, Lord of lords, King of kings, is what? Gentle and lowly. You see, in biblical terms, when the Bible talks about the heart of a person, the heart is not the seat of emotions like we view it today. The way the the, the biblical authors talked about the heart is different than the way we see it today. You see, for us today, we, we view the heart as the seat of emotions. We view it as the place where uh, it's this very... Um, you know, like kind of mushy-gushy when you ask a child to draw a picture of what love looks like. They often draw a heart because it's this very emotional uh, place. But when the biblical authors talk of the heart, they talk about the whole of a person's being. It's not just, it's not heart, mind, body. It's the heart of a person is everything that is bound up in that person. It's the, it's, it's the thing that makes that person tick. It's the engine that drives everything that person does. It's the core of a person. And interestingly, here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, this is the only place in all of the New Testament when we see the, 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 the person and work of Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, it's the only place where the Bible speaks of the heart of Christ. It's the only place we get a glimpse at at the the core and the essence and the the very being of who Christ is. Dane Ortland, who's a a pastor and he's an author as well, he wrote an incredible book called Gentle and Lowly. I would encourage you, uh, if you have not read this book, you should absolutely purchase a copy of it. Uh, He published it a couple of years ago and the whole book is really centered on these two verses, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. But, but in this book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland, he, he sums up the heart of Christ great. He says this. He says, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and He lets us peer way down into the core of who He is, 
We are not told that He is austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that He's exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that He is joyful and generous in heart. No, letting Jesus set the terms, His surprising claim is that He is gentle and lowly in heart. When Jesus tells us what animates Him most deeply, when He exposes the innermost recesses of His being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. Oh, dear friends, if you see anything about Christ this morning, if I can, if I can take your gaze and fix it upon Christ, I would tell you, look to His gentleness. Look how gently He deals with us sinners. See His tenderness towards us guilty sinners and flock to His grace and to His mercy. What's, what's been fascinating to me as, I have, as I've grown up in my Christian life and as I've grown in Christian maturity and as I walk with brothers and sisters into what it looks like to grow in Christ's likeness, one of the things that's been fascinating to me is that many Christians today have come to view Jesus as a begrudging Savior who dispenses grace and mercy frustratingly and sparingly. We picture Him like a, like a disgruntled father who's standing there with His arms crossed looking down at heaven and saying, you gave into that sin again? You did that again? I'm tired of giving you grace and mercy for that thing that you keep giving into. And today, instead of giving you all my grace and mercy, I'm just going to give you a piece of it. And if you give into it again, I'm going to, I'm going to keep dialing back my grace and mercy until you have to figure it out on your own. Oh, friends, how we've twisted the heart of Christ. Dear friend, Jesus is drawn to you in your sinfulness. He, get, he goes to those who are weak. I mean, look at the story of the Gospels. Who are the ones that Jesus rebukes? The Pharisees, the religious elite. Who are those that Jesus is drawn to? The tax collector, the sinner, the blind, the lame, the weak. Jesus is compassionate and He's drawn to those. His heart is one of gentleness and tenderness. Certainly, He is, he is a, a, a mighty lion. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords who has all dominion on heaven and in heaven and on earth. But dear friend, He is gentle and tender. He is gentle and lowly. He's like a, like a caring father who caresses His Son when He messes up. That's why one of the, the best stories of Jesus, I, I think, the best stories of Jesus in the New Testament is that of the prodigal son. What does the prodigal son do? He takes his inheritance, he leaves, he squanders it, he throws it all away, broken, distraught, having nowhere else to turn. The prodigal son says, I'll go back to my father's house and maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be a servant there. Maybe I'll eat with the servants. And what happens in the story of the prodigal son? The son comes back. Does the father stiff arm him? Does he give him the Heisman Trophy pose and stiff arm him at the gate of the, of the, the farm? No. The father sees him far off and he chases after him and he says, my son who's returned, kill the fattened calf. We're going to throw a party for my son because he was once dead and now he's alive. He was once lost and now he is 
found. That is how Christ is drawn to sinners, dear friends. Your sin cannot undo the gentleness and the tenderness of Christ. That is an important piece of information that you ought to take home today. Your your sin cannot undo the gentleness and the tenderness of Christ. I'm so thankful that Jesus deals gently and tenderly with me. I, I know I am so undeserving of His grace and His mercy. I am so undeserving of God's gentleness towards me, and yet He regularly, daily pours it out on me. And dear friend, He does the same for you. You may be here this morning, and, and, and maybe you would confess that you're not a Christian. Maybe you know in your heart of hearts that I'm not a Christian. That Jesus guy, that religious guy, doesn't really sound too enticing to me. I've, I've, I've thought of Jesus as being this, this, uh, this tyrant who expects me to keep a bunch of rules. And you've missed the heart of Christ. You've missed the fact that Jesus, what animates Him most is His gentleness and His lowliness. And He's ready to be gentle and lowly towards you today, dear friend. Or maybe you're here this morning and, and, and maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a day or for 20 years. Guess what? You don't, you don't get away from Jesus' tenderness and His gentleness either. You also need Jesus to be gentle and tender and lowly towards you. We don't graduate from the Gospel. We don't move on from the Gospel. We don't, the Gospel isn't something that we, 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 we internalize in our heads and then we move on from it in our lives. No, the, the, the growing up in Christian maturity is recognizing that we go deeper into the truth of the Gospel. We go deeper understanding what His meekness looks like. And because of this, as disciples of Jesus, gentleness ought to be the very thing that describes our lives. If gentleness describes the heart of Christ, how much more should it be said of His people? Gentleness and tenderness ought to be the posture of our hearts toward those around us. And so, ask yourself this question. Is that true of you? Would you consider yourself to be a gentle person? If you're a disciple of Jesus and, and someone were to ask your spouse or your children or your parents, if you were a gentle person, what would their response be? You see, as a parent, gentleness is one area of my life that I am regularly reminded of in my shortcomings. No area of my life has tested my gentleness like parenthood. And whether your children are, are, are little like mine is, or whether they are adults capable of making their own decision, I'm sure that I'm not alone in having my gentleness tested by my child. Parents, we are certainly not perfect. And I tell you that as the chief among those who recognize my shortcomings as a parent. We're often quick to be harsh with our children rather than gentle. We're quick to lash out in anger rather than deal tenderly with our kids. 
Parents, it is our responsibility to disciple our children. It is our responsibility to show our children Christ. God has called you first, me first, before the church, before children's ministry, before youth group, before any uh, Christian school they may, be, they may be a part of. God has called you first to be the one who is the primary disciple maker of your children. And so when we lash out at them and when we don't show gentleness to them, we must do two things. First, we must look to Christ whose well of gentleness will never run dry. And we draw deeply from that well. And secondly, we must apologize and repent before our children. Nothing will help them see the tenderness and the gentleness of Jesus more so than you humbling yourself, repenting and apologizing to your children. Now I say these things again as not as though I've figured it all out. Much to the contrary. I am, as a parent, I'm building the plane as it's flying. I'm laying track as the train is going forward. So I invite you, friends, to follow me as I follow Jesus. We must be gentle. The disciple of Christ models meekness by being gentle. Secondly, the meek life is also one that is humble. The meek life is one that is humble. Jesus modeled perfect humility for us, much like He did perfect gentleness. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, Paul writes this, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Friends, do you see how magnificent this is? Do you see how glorious the incarnation is? I pray, my prayer for our church is that we would never lose sight of how glorious the incarnation actually is. Here is Jesus, again, the second person of the Holy Trinity who humbled Himself. I mean, what religion could you think of where their God humbles themselves? But here we see Jesus who humbles Himself by, by taking on humanity. Christ was, he, before the Incarnation, He was truly divine. He was fully divine. He adds human nature to Himself in the Incarnation. And in doing this, He submits to the will of God by obediently and willingly dying on the cross for our sin. You see, the person and the work of Christ is humility par excellence. And this is what the life of the disciple of Jesus should resemble. Willful, humble submission to the will of God. The disciple who practices humble meekness, it's a bit of an oxymoron because those things almost mean the same thing, but you get where I'm going. The disciple who practices humble meekness is not domineering. That person is not assertive over others. The meek life of humility does not try to get the Lord to bend His knee to our will, 
But instead, he lays his life on the table like a blank check and says, Lord, here is my life. Do with it what you will. You see, friends, submitting to the will of the Lord can often be a challenging, difficult, scary even at times, thing to do. I'm, I'm convinced as I've gotten to know uh, our, our church members and, and as I've gotten to just see the, the ebb and flow of our church, I'm convinced that, that some of you here this morning are called to be a church planter one day, a missionary, pastoral ministry to some degree. But it isn't only the future will of the Lord that may be challenging for us to submit to. The Lord's will for your life presently, right now, in this moment, may be just as difficult for you to submit to. The Lord may have some of you in a particular season of suffering where all you want to do is get through to the other side, but for a time He has you in a place like He had Job. I was struck yesterday as I, was, uh, as I spent time meditating on, on Psalm 23, that, that great shepherding psalm. And I was reminded that in the midst of suffering, you know, as, as the psalmist David says, he says, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so the, the shepherd doesn't take us out of the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't lead us around it or above it. He doesn't lead us not to go into it. No, the, the shepherd, the tender shepherd, the humble shepherd leads his people through the valley of the shadow of death. And then we will fear no evil because our shepherd has our greatest interests in mind. For a season, the Lord may have some of you suffering. And you may want nothing more than to get out of that. But we must submit to the will of the Lord. Not only, the future, not only for what's next in our lives, but what's presently going on today. The Lord may have some of you in a place where you want your work circumstances or maybe even your home circumstances to change. But right now, He has you in a place where you are forced to trust in Him for provision. Maybe even some of you, you long to be in a different city, and you're waiting for your right opportunity to jump to the next chapter in life. You're waiting for, for the Lord to open a door so you can jump to that next thing in life. But instead, the Lord is not opening that door so that you can focus on where you are right now. Not getting so caught up in what's next. Wherever you find yourself, the disciple of Jesus who seeks to live a meek life will submit to the will of the Lord both in the future, what's next for my life, and in the present. Now, I'll put a caveat here. It's not wrong to ask the Lord the question of what's next for my life. It's not wrong to do that. But if you are considering what's next for your life, whether it be a job opportunity, maybe it's a, a new duty station, maybe it is just wanting to get out of the present circumstances you're in today. Let me encourage you to do so uh, with a posture of humility, knowing that the Lord, like man can determine his plans, but the Lord makes his steps. We can plan all that we want to, 
We can strategize. We can come up with these great schemes. But it is God who determines our steps. And He may, in His sovereignty, say, not yet. Not ever. And so humility, the meek, humble disciple, submits to the will of the Lord where they are, both right now and where they're going in the future. Now, before we answer that third question of what is the outcome of the meek life, I want to leave you with a few questions that I think can be a litmus test for humility in your own life. So I want you to think about what your responses to these questions would be. Please don't, like, don't nudge your spouse if one of these is particularly pertaining to them. Keep those nudges until on the car ride home, maybe. Um, but I'm going to ask these questions, and I want you just to think about what your answer to them would be. Uh, first, who is the hero of the stories you tell? As you tell stories to people, who's the hero? Second, are you okay if others never know your credentials? Are you satisfied if you live your entire life and no one ever knows your credentials? We get a fascinating account of this in the book of Philippians when Paul, uh, he, he lists this, I mean, if there's anyone who had a perfect resume for ministry, it was Paul. And he kind of lays this out in the book of Philippians and he says he's of, he's a, the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He did all these great things. Had the perfect resume for ministry. And what does he say about it? I counted them all as dung. What the CSB translation says. Paul's credentials were a pile of hot garbage to him. So that, because of, what was better to Paul was knowing Jesus. And so are you okay if no one ever knows your credentials? Third, do you serve others to be served? Do you serve in your home? Do you serve at work? Do you serve your children so that deep down you hope that they will scratch your back in return? Do you serve others to be served? Fourth, can you live your entire life without being recognized for your accomplishments? Like this one's particularly pertaining to my military friends here. Part of... Uh, going into being promoted in the military is having people see what you've accomplished. Are you okay with no one ever knowing your accomplishments? Next, students. We have some middle school and high school students in the room. One day in the not so distant future, you are going to be con you're you're going to have to consider what is next for my life after I graduate. And as you consider that question, are you looking for a career that will make much of you or much of Christ? Lastly, my military members, active duty especially, are you looking for a promotion to further your career or to further the cause of Christ? Are you looking for a new duty station because it looks great for, to make the next rank? Are you looking for a better location than where you currently are? Or are you seeking to further the cause of Christ? You see, friends, pride 
is like the weed of the heart. No matter how many times you pluck it, it will always creep back up when we don't expect it. Sometimes it creeps up in different places. Sometimes it creeps up in different seasons. And sometimes it creeps up even deeper than when you dug it up the first time. But as disciples of Jesus, we must be ever on guard and seeking to live a meek life marked by humility. So what does the meek life look like? It looks like one of gentleness and one of humility. We'll round out our time with this third question. What is the outcome of the meek life? What happens to those who are meek? Thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer in the text we read. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus says this, he says, Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the humble, those who recognize they're poor in spirit, those who mourn their sin, blessed are those for what? They shall inherit the earth. When Jesus says this, he almost certainly has in mind Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, verse 11, David writes this almost verbatim. David says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now David wrote this psalm as as an encouragement for God's people. As, As a call for them to endure, to remind them that evil will not prosper forever. That God will deliver His own covenant people. And in their meekness, in their gentleness, and their humility, they will inherit the land. You see, in the Old Testament, the land often referred to the promised land, but it always had hope and expectation for a future promised land that would supersede the old. When Jesus says that the meek will inherit the land, He does not have in mind a specific piece of property It's not a specific plot of land that Jesus has in mind, but instead, He has in mind heaven itself. The kingdom of God with all of its kingdom benefits with Christ as its King. And we get a glimpse of that kingdom that is to come in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. If you're in Christ this morning, if you are a disciple of Jesus, Listen to the promise that awaits you. In John, or sorry, John writes in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. This I want to read this a little slowly so that we can let the weight of it sink in because it's a significant and, and, and glorious promise for those who are in Christ. But John writes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, catch this, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. This is my favorite part of this promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore for the former things. The old things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If Jesus said this, we know that it's going to come to pass. And He said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. What an inheritance. What a glorious promise for those who are in Christ. Who are we, such sinners, that we should be able to dwell in the presence of the Lord where sin will be no more. Our inheritance went from that of condemnation to glorification. Our heritage changed from sinner to son. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that John read for us, that when the fullness of time came, Jesus was sent to die so that we would receive adoption as sons. The Lord gloriously and graciously adopts us into His family, and all the blessings of sonship are given to us. Dear friends, the meek can rest knowing that their inheritance is a secure inheritance, because it was not brought about by their own strength. We are not the ones who uphold it. That inheritance, the the meek will inherit the earth. We're not the ones who uphold that. Christ has secured our inheritance. Christ is going to give the meek the earth. And that inheritance will not be shaken when the perils of life are thrown at us. It will not be snatched away when trial and tribulation come. Take heart, dear friend, because your inheritance is secure in Christ. 